Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of the American Social Fabric podcast titled Lessons from the Founding Fathers, Part 1. to all the repeat listeners who have checked out this podcast before. Uh, I truly appreciate you coming back and listening again. It gives me the motivation to keep making this podcast. And uh, hello to everybody who's a new listener. In this podcast, our purpose is to explore the core values and ideals of the American political system in an attempt to repair the, sol- the frayed social fabric of our country and to inject some optimism and hope again back into our political sphere. Now, in this episode... I thought it'd be useful to kind of go back and re-emphasize, re-explore, and look at kind of the key points that we t- covered in the first 10 episodes of the podcast. I know episode 11 was kind of a, you know, just like a short current events type podcast. Um, however, I know that when, you know, when you're listening to 10, 20, 25 minutes a week of effectively letters by the founding fathers, some of these things can get repetitive or lost, or you forget some of the key things they were saying. Um, so I thought it'd be useful for this one, you know, 10 is a nice round number to kind of go back and re-listen to those and then organize and lay out the key points from those episodes here. So after going back and listening, there was 10 key points or key, you know, interesting facts and observations that I'd like to rediscuss with you guys today. Now they're in no particular order, uh, but I did try and make them at least flow logically. So on that, let's move into the first point that I want to discuss, and that is the miracle of the Constitution. So many of the founding fathers seem to agree, and a caveat here is that, of course, these would be the, the Federalist founding fathers are the ones who are in favor of the Constitution, uh, but they seem genuinely surprised that the Constitution was as good as it was. The fact that it was so near to perfect, as Benjamin Franklin said. Not only was it drafted in an astonishingly good way, but the fact that it was you know, adopted, accepted, and implemented was in many ways the best-case scenario for America at that time. I remember, I believe it was Alexander Hamilton, um, in episode three, was talking about, you know, the alternatives for America if the ratification of the Constitution failed. You know, what were they, to break up into multiple confederacies, um, little, effectively, city-states, civil war, you know, there wasn't many good options moving forward for the country, considering it was operating on a the Articles of Confederation, which had failed at that point, and the citizens knew that it failed. You know, they were having a hard time. There was effectively, you know, economic wars going on between the different states at that point with their currencies and things like that, um, which I do intend to do an episode about later because I think that's particularly interesting. However, you know, the Constitution as it was was in many ways a best-case scenario for early Americans, and it's shocking that it got that way, and it was drafted so well. Um, this was covered in four different episodes. Benjamin Franklin talked about it, Alexander Hamilton, James Wilson, and James Madison. So it, it's shocking that it didn't even get drafted given human flaws and self-interest and the fact that 
people have genuine political disputes, you know, when they're ra uh, drafting these documents. So, yeah, that's the first major point is the miracle that the Constitution was a good was as good as it was on draft number one to the people. So the second key takeaway and point I want to discuss, um, I think it's actually arguably a you know caveat to the first point. However, it surprised me so much that I thought I'd talk about it separately. So in episode seven, Madison wrote his letter to Jefferson, and in that letter, he thought that he should take the time to tell Jefferson that the members of the Constitutional Convention agreed that the country should stay together. Now that sounds, I guess, kind of obvious from like a historical perspective, or if you're looking back and you're like, of course they, they agreed on that. But in my head, they would have agreed on it going into it. Like that would have been an unspoken assumption of the people going there to, you know, draft the constitution is that the country should stay together. However, that's not the case. The case was they actually discussed and decided that, or at least everyone agreed that the country should stay together as a, as a one union. And I thought this was extremely surprising and that Madison even thought to tell Jefferson surprises me even more. So I guess that's something, you know, we look back with and just take for granted from a historical perspective. However, it wasn't as obvious to them back then. It wasn't a given that the country was going to stay together. And I guess that's not something we should take for granted now either. So points three and four that I want to discuss both deal with self-interest and the ratification process. However, I kind of wanted to split them up into two uh, because the first one deals with the acknowledgement by the drafters of the self-interest of the you know, the person who will be voting for it, the everyman. And then the second one is kind of the not-so-surprising self-interest of the people in positions of political power. Because um, they're both, they, they're discussed differently, and I think they are two different points, but they're both interesting. So moving into point three was the surprising amount of recognition by the drafters of the self-interest and self-concerns of the everyday person that's going to be voting to ratify the Constitution. From economics perspective to like a family security perspective um, and a acknowledgement that these people are going to be looking at the constitution from that perspective not from any high-minded political ideal perspective which i guess is kind of what we would consider looking back now is you know i guess a lot of the way that you know early americans were portrayed as you know fighting for liberty very concerned with you know representation and all these high-minded ideals but I think we forget sometimes looking back that many of these people were just concerned with putting food on the table. So in that note, um, Hamilton in his, you know, in episode two in his conjectures about the new constitution was talking about how the self-interest of people in avoiding taxes in low taxes in avoiding they had their pre-existing debts, things like that would have really made a huge difference in whether they would vote for the constitution or not. Because if you didn't have to pay your debts before because they were in a different currency from a different state or something and you lived in Virginia say and New York is where you owed money and if under this new system you'd be much more likely to have to pay that debt back then you know that's something you would consider and whether or not you ratified the constitution so you wouldn't be concerned necessarily with your representation in, in the legislature you'd be concerned with the fact that you owe Bob you know, 200 whatever the currency was back then for some sheep or whatever. Um, so I think that is the first example. Uh, this was also covered in episode six in that a political dialogue, which was that, that short newspaper article that was written between, you know, somebody who was Mr. Grumble, who was looking to hate the Constitution, and the other person who was, you know, 
like, look, everyone's very concerned with because they can't put food on the table and they can't trade and they can't do this and that. And it was very, you know, laying out real world concerns and real world arguments for the everyday man of why he should ratify the Constitution. Um, and this ties into a related point that the Founding Fathers were very concerned with creating a stable, predictable society because they thought that would make a free society. And through a stable, predictable society, people's economic liberties and property rights could be protected. So the fourth and related point that I want to talk about is the self-interest of those with political power and those with a vested interest in, you know, the existing power structures under the Articles of Confederation, whether that be at the state level or the local level or really anywhere. You could even be at the semi-federal level they had then. In essence, those people, uh, you know, they understood the system they were working in, they had power in the system they were in, and they didn't want to lose that power to a new system where they had to compete with, you know, many more persons or different persons with more power than them, and in essence, challenge their ability to, to act. So we saw this uh, in episode two, and then we also saw it again in episode 10. However, in episode 10, Hamilton not only recognizes those with vested power, and interest. He also noted people who thrived in chaos, and I found this to be a very interesting point. You know, a recognition that there are actors out there who prefer there to be little central power and little power in general, so that they can thrive in the uncertainty and thrive in the confusion that would otherwise make most people's lives more difficult. And I think that it's interesting to see a recognition of those people because you know we see those people in our world today, you know, people who keep things uncertain for their own benefits. So moving on to point number five, it this one's a lot different than the last couple of points that dealt with self-interest. It's, it's a recognition by the people of the time who are making the decision about the ratification of the Constitution, about the significance of their decision. I mean, I think, I guess, you assume they understand the significance, but to see them say that they understood the significance, that they're really making a choice that's going to affect generations to come not only their own lives, but, you know, their grandchildren's and their grandchildren's grandchildren. You know, they're enshrining the rights of them down the road. So the decision they're making is significant, and they understood it, and they didn't want to get it wrong. You know, consequently, you saw both on the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist side, you know, the arguments by first, you know, the Arthur Brutus one in episode five, and under uh, Hamilton's writings in episode 10, and affected you know, a recognition that, like, this is a defining choice you're making in your life with far-reaching consequences, and you have to, you know, make a well-reasoned and informed choice about whether you implement effectively an entirely new system of laws that have never been tested before by humans. And I think this is a very interesting and, and almost optimistic point. So point number six falls in the same vein, of making decisions and that would be the importance of humility in making your decisions we saw multiple authors throughout the podcast so far make the point that it's important to remember that when you're making a decision or you're holding a strong belief um, that you could be wrong and you should hold some humility in these you know in the process of making your decisions and arguing about them uh, we saw this in episode one with benjamin franklin in his speech at the constitutional convention we saw it again in episode number 10 in the Federalist Papers number one. You know, the main theme was just, you know, if you're making, 
if you're arguing about it, something or you hold a strong opinion, remember that you could be wrong. Um, and then episode 10 kind of adds a twist on it that even if you have the best intentions and even if you are holding that opinion because you think you're doing the right thing, you could be wrong. So it's important to you know, treat other people with respect and to listen to other people's points when debating something. So moving on to point number seven and kind of shifting to some more political focused and um, you know political philosophy related points is the debate over granting power to the federal government. On the one hand, you had in episode four people like James Wilson who argued that you need to constrain the government because the grant of power to the federal government was very broad and that by granting the such broad power, unless you specified certain things to protect or that specified certain things that the government couldn't regulate on, in essence, protecting certain liberties that the government kind of bulldoze over everything and not be constrained in any way. Um, in essence, he was, you know, arguing for a bill of rights to constrain the federal government. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you had, you know, like in episode eight, uh, Jefferson and Madison, you know, writing letters to each other, in essence, saying that, you know, the, you know, the government was constrained to only the things granted to it and they could only act in the areas where they were granted power. And thus, you didn't need to constrain it, because if you started listing out constraints, you could have the argument that anything that you didn't specify as protected was fair game for the government to legislate on. So it was kind of a argument of, do you risk you know, spelling out certain things that the government can't legislate on, or do you risk putting in certain areas where the government is not allowed to regulate at all? You know, given history, we've ended up with the Bill of Rights that, you know, spells out specific rights that the government's not allowed to regulate on. And in my opinion, that has worked out very well. Um, I think it'd be much more dangerous if you didn't have anything or anywhere where things are kind of hemmed in and given, you know, absolute barriers. So I think, you know, I definitely fall on the side of, of course, the Bill of Rights was necessary. I think most people would agree with me. I'm not sure if anyone nowadays, given the way that, you know, federal power has grown and the areas in which, you know, regulation exists, you know, would say that no limits are needed on government in regards to speech regulation, protest regulation, um, anything like that. So I think, in my opinion, that's a settled question given time. But back then, it was very much a novel and, and honestly important question then for ask because, you know, you could argue or one could make an argument that, you know, if you didn't tell me I couldn't regulate there, I'm going to regulate there. Or also, if you say, like, you laid out everything that you can't, where I can't regulate, therefore I won't go to those areas, but I'm going to do anything else I want. I find that to be very interesting, and it's a important debate for the time. Staying in the realm of concerns about power and self-perpetuating power, we move to point number eight. Uh, we had both sides of the debate, both the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, concerned about self-perpetuating power. And a concern that, you know, once somebody gets in power, whether that be a president or, you know, a powerful person in a legislature, uh, they will continue to expand that power and they will do what they can to keep growing. Um, this manifested in a couple different ways throughout the episodes. Uh, for instance, this was just the base fear in episode number five with Brutus One. We also had this show up in episode number seven when you had debates about term limits and you know controls on the executive branch. You know, we also had this show up in episode number eight 
where Jefferson had the concern about not having a hard cap on term limits for presidents because he said even if you had something such as a ability in the people or in the legislature to remove an executive at will, this power was never exercised by the people. And I think he used a couple of historical examples for this, but basically the essence was, you know, it doesn't matter who has the power to remove as long as that person's in power, they will stay in power. Jefferson was also concerned with, you know, relying on an election to remove someone from power. In essence, not having a hard cap on their term limits, but saying, you know, as long as they stay reelected, they can be the president. His concern was that someone in power would never honor an election, that they would eventually say, you know, I, kind of what we've seen recently, you know, I was cheated or the the votes are fake or, you know, things like that, basically that they would cheat the election and cheat the voters. Finally, in episode number 10, we had concerns about you know, essentially the sheep's and wolf clothing argument that those persons seeking power would use, you know, democratic ideals and they would use enthusiasm in the people in order to gain power. And once they would have power, they would drop all the pretense of democratic ideals and then hold on to power. Finally, in this vein, and I think unusual, it was unusual and interesting, is the concern that Jefferson had about putting a restriction on monopolies in the Bill of Rights. I think this is extremely interesting, and it would have changed our business landscape entirely, our entire business law. I'm, I'm a corporate lawyer, so I deal in this stuff every day. You know, if we had some constitutional restriction on the size a business can be or how many areas they can move into or something, you wouldn't have to rely on, on especially con- you know, congressionally passed antitrust laws. Um, it would give so much stronger backing to the arguments in favor of anti-monopolies and business restrictions, so that wouldn't that's something that that significant would have had a huge impact on the entirety of America's business laws. Moving on to point number nine, and again staying in the realm of power, is the debate over the power to which the federal government can control the state legislatures. This popped up in episode number five, episode seven, and episode number eight. So we had, you know, an anti-federalist we had Madison and we had Jefferson all writing on this point. And essentially the debate the debate is you know, can the federal legislature control the states? Now, one thing I found interesting was how Madison was discussing the different, you know, the different extents to which this control would be, whether it would be, you know, just the federal legislature and the state legislatures would operate apart, whether if there was a conflict that the, you know, federal legislature would hold or whether, you know, there's many different ways it could have played out. But in the end, it's interesting that it ended with the fact that, you know, the federal government operates essentially apart from the state legislature. You know, they both act independently of each other, but they don't need each other to operate, which I think is, is fascinating that it worked out that way and that, quite frankly, things have worked out as well as they have since then. You know, we have certain legal structures in our co- country where federal government passes a law where it has room to legislate. It does override state law in those same fields. Um, it's called preemption. Uh, but in essence, it's interesting that the states can operate without having really any input in the federal government from a day-to-day operations type perspective. I mean, this is a key point in a key area of law, you know, the, the struggle between state and federal governments, because, you know, you see it play out in many ways over history, you know, whether that be school integration, civil rights issues. Uh, recently, gay marriage was a big one in my, you know, upbringing and when I was, you know, kind of in my early 20s, late teens, kind of that era. So, you know, this does play out often, and it plays out usually with the most contentious and significant social issues in my experience. Finally, moving on to point number 10, and staying again in the theme of power, 
uh, is the debate between Madison on the one hand and Cato III's author on the other um, about the debate about whether majorities protect about whether large minor about whether large majorities or small majorities better protect individual rights. On the one hand, you had Madison arguing that through larger states, um, you essentially dilute what the majority opinion is, and by diluting the majority opinion, you protect minority interests more. On the other hand, you had Cato III who thought that large majorities and large republics in general led to despotism because it's harder to put checks and balances on people who are gaining power in a large government system. Um, I think on this point, I fall more in Madison's opinion because you're going to have more opinions, you're going to have more debate in a larger republic. And I don't think it really matters either way the size of a republic because people will always seek power, people will always seek to grow that power. And no matter what, you're going to have wealthy, powerful citizens, and whether you have few in a small republic or many more in a large republic, I think it's better to have more opinions debating important points in that regard. So, um, yeah, I definitely fall on the Madison side of this argument, but I think it's an interesting one. And on that, that ends our summary of the major points that I found interesting and that I wanted to highlight from the first 10 episodes of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this summary. Um, I know it was a little different than the usual episode format, well, we'll move back to the normal format again next week. Uh, kind of moving forward, themes I want to incorporate more into the podcast as we move you know, into episodes 12, 13, 14, and beyond um, would be more optimism. I know that I had mentioned in the first episode how much West Wing was formative for me, even if I didn't or didn't end up agreeing with many of the you know, political opinions they're putting forward in the show. I, what really struck with me and you know, stuck with me over time is the optimism the show had you know, for our system and for what it can achieve. So that's something I definitely want to work more in, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's through the good section of each episode. We will see. But that's just kind of my plans moving forward. And on that note, I hope you have a great rest of your week and a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week, everybody.